Would you please join me in standing for the reading of God's Word and turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, it's always helpful and sometimes even vital to have it in front of you as we study God's Word together so you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby you and you'll find this morning's text on page 998. If you're new to us here at Redeemer, we are in the third week of what should be a nine-week series through this little letter from the Apostle Paul to his good friend Titus. Uh, We know from the early verses of the letter that Paul had planted a church in this Greek island of Crete and he had left Titus there on that 100 mile long and 100 city strong island in order to put what remained into order. We said last week to set things straight and appoint elders in every town. It's a letter about church health, what is necessary for a church to be sound in Jesus Christ. And the simple theme of Titus from start to finish is sound leaders must teach sound doctrine in order to lead a church in sound living. And all of those truths show up in our text today, which is verses 10 through 16 of chapter 1. So let me read those verses for us and then pray for God to bless our study. And then we will begin our time together. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through His Word. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's Word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your word is truth, that it is living and active. We confess, Father, that we are often prone to wander into error. We are prone to wander into falsehood, and so we thank you that your word corrects us, that it even rebukes and admonishes us when necessary. And so as we come to a text that means to protect us in the truth of Jesus Christ, we pray that we would indeed find a sound refuge and steady tower of faithfulness in our Savior, that by the Spirit our eyes might be opened to understand this truth, that we might apply it rightly to our church, to our homes, to our lives. Help us to hear with earnestness, with eagerness and meekness for me to preach as your word says I must with clarity and courage, that Christ might be exalted. We pray all these things in His name. Amen. You may be seated. J. Gresham Machen was a man, he was a churchman who was very familiar with controversy. He was the New Testament professor in the 1920s, early 1920s at Princeton Seminary. 
He was something of the lone ranger when it came to arguing against the creeping tide of liberalism in the Presbyterian church at the time. So successful was he in arguing for and again, for truth against liberalism that he ended up having to create a whole new seminary, a whole new denomination. And as things are wont to be when you have people fighting for truth, he created not just many friends, but he found even more enemies. Uh, one of them even said of Gresham Machen at the time that he had a personality that only his close friends could appreciate. And in the middle of that controversy in 1925, he preached a sermon that was titled, The Separateness of the Church. And his first paragraph went like this. It is a great principle, and there has never been a time in all the centuries of Christian history when it has not needed to be taken to heart. The really serious attack upon Christianity has not been the attack carried on by fire, sword, threats of bonds, or death, but it's been the more subtle attack that has been masked by friendly words. It has not been the attack from without, but the attack from within. The enemy has done his deadliest work when he has come with words of love and compromise and peace. And how persistent the attack has been. Never in the centuries of the church's life has it been altogether relaxed. And if you know anything about the New Testament, particularly the letters and instructions from Christ's apostles, you know from those first decades after Christ's ascension, all throughout the centuries since, the church has always faced a perennial threat, which is error, falsehood, heresy. You may be surprised to discover more than alerts about money, cautions about sensuality, Warnings about idolatry. The New Testament, Christ and His apostles, most consistently are concerned with error creeping into the church. Kids, what you need to know is that Satan, he always slinks around trying to get you to doubt and to disbelieve the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so often when we come to letters written to pastors of the earliest churches in the first century, inevitably you find some place where they're being encouraged to stand firm in the truth. That's exactly what we have in our text today. Its simple theme is confront false teaching in the church. Seven verses that say you must confront the error there in Crete. And so it's helpful for us to note that the error is churchly. It's not outside of the church, it's inside of the church. Many Christians today can be so zealous to defend the truth in its falsehoods or against falsehoods outside of the church, all the while forgetting that more often than not, when error creeps into the church, it does so sitting in a seat next to you on the Lord's day. If you know anything about church history, when a church implodes, the ignition switch always comes from within inside the body. And so Paul is here to help us discern false teaching. Paul's here in our text not just to discern it, but also to help tell us how to deal with false teaching. Because maybe you noticed as I read through the verses just a few minutes ago, seven verses that have no less than 14 characteristics of false teaching. We, of course, don't have time to deal with each one of them 
at any level of depth. But what I want to do as we walk through this text is help us notice the four main things that Paul is bringing out related to false teaching and how we're to confront it. And we begin in verse 10 with his call to confront the deception of false teaching. Just look at the first three words of verse 10. He says, for there are. Now you need to know there's something linking verse 10 to what came before. It's that simple word, for. Now, kids, if you were with us last week, students, if you were with us last week, you may remember, I do hope you do remember, that from verses 5 through 9, right at the outset of his instruction, Paul tells Titus, appoint elders. And here are all the qualifications that you need to see in that man if he is going to lead God's church with faithfulness, with truthfulness. And look at verse 9 at the very last thing that he requires of elders. They must have the ability to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. So, the link between verse 9 and 10 is why. Why must elders be able to rebuke falsehood? Well, look at how verse 10 continues. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. Maybe you want to underline that word many. It's not a tiny team or a microscopic movement affecting these churches in Crete. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. If you have a different translation, maybe it says there are many who are rebellious. A different word for insubordination. It paints the picture, doesn't it, of this soldier who's always disobeying his superior commands, superior's commands, because he just wants to do his own thing, follow his own desire, his own passion, his own will. Not just that, they are empty talkers. They like to hear themselves speak. When they preach and when they teach, it's empty of any truth of Jesus Christ or genuine gospel realities. When they preach a sermon, it's like a plate of bacon soon set before a dog. It's going to be empty in its meatiness. They're also deceivers. And that should cue you in right here at the outset to the ominous tone that really is permeating this text. Because what is the favorite tactic of the devil and his demons? We know from Genesis 3 on, it's deception. Just slightly adjusting the truth of God's Word in order to lead God's people astray. It's why in 1 Timothy chapter 4, I think he's got the same group of people in mind there in Ephesus when he's talking to Timothy. He says, these false teachers have devoted themselves to the teachings of demons. It's a demonic, satanic attack that is affecting the churches here at Crete. And you'll notice as the verse continues in verse 10, Paul has a very particular group of people in mind. Do you see what he says? There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So maybe ask yourself that question. What were the hallmarks of the circumcision party? Who even were in the circumcision party. Well, it's quite clear throughout the New Testament that this party consisted of Jews claiming the name of Christ, and they seemed to dog the apostles anywhere that they went. You'll find this circumcision party showing up in books like Acts, Galatians, Colossians, First and Second Timothy, here in Titus, Hebrews, Jude, just to name a few. Many of you know that Jesus himself had to confront false teaching coming out of Judaism all throughout his ministry. And what this party simply was always doing 
When they talked about the sufficiency of Christ for salvation, they would say, no, it's not enough just to believe in Christ and the blood that he shed on the cross for your sins. There was always something else that needed to get added to it in order that you actually might indeed be righteous before God. And so he's got these particular people in mind. And he doesn't tell us at the outset what kind of teaching was infecting the church there at Crete. He's going to get there in a moment in verse 14, but he's content right at the beginning to tell us to confront the deception of false teachers. And as he moves into verse 11, he tells us to confront the division of false teachers. For look at verse 11. They must be silenced. Silenced is a word that more literally means uh, on the mouth. So kids, you can think of maybe someone that's making lots of loud noises, disrupting the room, dividing the household. Sometimes there might be this sinful temptation within your mind to just do this. Cover the mouth so nothing can come out. And that's what Paul is saying must be done here in silencing the false teachers. He's saying, Timothy, you and the elders, spiritually speaking, cover their mouth. Why? Well, notice how the verse continues. Since... They are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now, it shouldn't surprise you that these teachers are upsetting whole families. He doesn't say they're upsetting entire congregations. He doesn't say they're upsetting whole churches. Because as best we can tell, the churches there on the island of Crete would have been house churches. Congregations would have met in homes. They were small enough, of course, to do that at the time. Not just that, in the context of the Greek culture of the time, when philosophical discourse was uttered, when religious instruction was given, it was always in a home. And so you have these false teachers infiltrating their error into homes and they're upsetting the household. This word upsetting, it is used throughout the Bible often of overturn or overthrow. You find it in John chapter 2, verse 15, where Jesus storms into the temple with righteous anger and indignation. What does he do to the money changers' tables? He turns them over, overthrows everything that was wrong there. And this is happening in these early homes. They're being overthrown with the error. And do you see the motive, Paul says, behind the false teacher's teaching? In verse 11, he says, they do it for shameful gain, thinking that if they just preach, if they give some sort of religious instruction, they can make a quick buck. You want to pause here for a second and maybe think about just your own life. What do you hope to gain from the preaching and teaching of God's Word? I'm sure you don't hope to gain a padded bank account from it. But what do you hope to gain? Those of you who are thinking about, studying for, wanting to pursue a call in the gospel ministry, what kind of gain do you hope to receive from preaching Jesus Christ? As you know, in our culture, in our even Presbyterian context, it's much more common for people to want to gain through the preaching of the Word. Ministers wanting to gain a popular platform that they might be well-known and well-received. Or even, don't you know that many congregations want through the preaching of the Word the congregation to have a popular, powerful personality in the community, well-known for something exciting is going on over there. Well, what you need to see in Paul's ministry is that he says there is always and only one gain that we are looking for when it comes to the truth and using it, receiving it as God's people. You can find this in Philippians chapter 3 where he says, let us as God's people long be willing to suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that we might what? Gain 
Jesus Christ and be found in Him. The only gain worth pursuing, the only gain worth praying for as God's people, as God's leaders, is who Jesus is and what He has done for us as it's delivered to us in the preaching of the Word. And that's precisely the opposite of what's true about these men who are dividing the church. And so we must confront them, Paul says, on their deception, confront them on their division. And then as the text continues, he says, confront them on their devotion. Because look at what he quotes in verse 12. He says, one of the Cretans, as best we can tell, this is an old uh, Greek philosopher named Epimenides. Epimenides said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. You know, we said last week that there was a reputation of Cretans within Greece, the Greek culture, uh, that wasn't very favorable to that small island uh, people. Uh, They were best understood to be nothing more than deceivers themselves, and what was most odorous to any other Greek was the Cretans' claim that the great Greek god Zeus was born on their island, as though they had some type of status of privilege because of what was born there. But further than that, there were also this pirate culture in which they often would send out mercenaries and pirates in order to just destroy other nations and destroy sea-raiding trades and all, all, all those things along the way. And then you have this Greek philosopher, Epimenides, saying, hey, they're just lazy gluttons. They're evil people. They always lie. In fact, at the time when Paul was writing this letter, to Cretanize or Cretize meant just to lie. They were so synonymous with lying that they had become slang even in and of themselves. And you'll look what Paul says at the beginning of verse 13. He says, yes and amen, this testimony is true. Maybe he knew that from his time on Crete, planting the church. He seems to be saying these false teachers prove Epimenides' stereotype. Always lying, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So, what should the church do when faced with such a battalion of falsehood? Well, in the 1870s, there was a book that was published anonymously that made great headway into the Church of England at the time. It was a book that was published, Supernatural Religion. It immediately sold thousands upon thousands of copies, would have been on the bestseller lists if they had such things at that time. Multiple editions went through, and it was really affecting the nature of the Church of England because it was arguing that the ancient church fathers got it all wrong, calling into question their credibility, especially when it came to the understanding of the Christian faith as a supernatural religion. And maybe 18 months or so into the conflict, a man named J.B. Lightfoot, who at the time was professor of divinity at Cambridge University, he began to publish a series of articles refuting rebuking this anonymous book for all of its wild claims. And at the time, a bookseller said it didn't take long for supernatural religion to be relegated to the second-hand market for under Lightfoot's searching criticism, the foundation of the book had been destroyed, been silenced, been rebuked sharply, which is exactly what Paul says we must do whenever we face false teaching. Look at how he continues in verse 13. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Sharply actually is this idea of cutting away. So kids, you might think of cutting away fat from a piece of meat. This is what Paul says we must do in the error that often confronts the church. You have to cut it away so that the truth might be received in the fullness of all of it is. And you notice there's a positive 
desire. There's a positive goal in mind as we go about rebuking people sharply. You see how verse 13 continues, that they may be sound, that's healthy in the faith. It's the same word, this word rebuke, that showed up back in verse 9. And if you were with us last week, I told you that that word means much more than just correcting an opponent. It was having skill in rebuking an opponent to such a degree that ordinarily they would confess their sin and be won over to the truth. It's the skill in not just winning an argument. It's the skill in winning a heart to the truth. So this idea of silencing error, this idea of rebuking sharply falsehood in the church always has this positive remedial intent that they might be sound in the faith. Not just bruising a conscience, not just cutting a mind, but restoring them to right fellowship with the Lord. And you'll see Paul begins now to speak of the devotion of these false teachers in verse 14. He says there's two things that they're devoted to. This is all we really know about the kind of error they were teaching. First, they're devoted to man-made myths. Verse 14 says they must not devote themselves to Jewish myths. You'll see it later on if you just scan your eyes over to verse 9 of chapter 3, that they seem to be fomenting foolish controversies genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. If you've ever walked through a Bible reading plan, it will not take you long. Genesis 4 and 5 is when you really first get it. You run into what we call a genealogy. And you have all of these lists of long names that tend to show up throughout the Old Testament. And maybe in your Bible reading plan, it's where you lose some head of steam. Maybe when you get to Chronicles or Numbers and list after list of name after name, you're like, I don't know who this person is. Well, a Jewish person in the first century said the same thing. We have no idea who these guys are. And so what the rabbis would do, they would begin to invent a myth about those individuals. What they would do is, well, here were all the heroic deeds they performed for Yahweh. Here was all the heroic devotion that they showed to the Lord. And so the idea in perpetuating these Jewish myths was Christ and his cross is not enough for wisdom in righteousness. What you need is something else. These man-made myths about what it means to truly be holy, what it means to be truly devoted unto the Lord. And Paul says, rebuke them sharply. For those man-made myths. Number two, rebuke them sharply for their man-made commandments. Verse 14 continues that you must rebuke them, rebuke them, I'm sorry, for the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And again, as best we can tell, the kind of people that Paul has in mind here on Crete are the same kind of people affecting Titus and his, I'm sorry, Timothy and his ministry at Ephesus. And if you were to look later on today at 1 Timothy chapter 4, it says the two main commands, man-made commandments, these false teachers were perpetrating in the church were related to abstinence. They said, number one, you ought not to marry. Number two, there's certain foods you can't eat. And Paul, of course, knew his Bible well enough to say, no, marriage between one man and one woman is a good thing, a gift from the Lord. And that in Jesus Christ, all food is acceptable when it's received with thanksgiving, faith, and prayer. And so maybe in our churches today, we don't have such man-made commandments that float about in our contexts. But Paul is exhorting us to rebuke extra-biblical religion. And maybe you know enough of Christian history or maybe your own experience in churches, how true it is 
that across the denominational spectrum, across the cultures, across the world, man-made extra-biblical commands tend to always creep their way into a local church if you're not careful. Man-made commands like what you can or cannot do in a worship service, what instruments may or may not be used on the Lord's Day. Man-made commands about following church calendars, feasts, and festivals as though there's extra piety to be gained through such an observance. Or maybe more uniquely in our country are man-made commands about what you can do. Watch whatever you want. Listen to whatever you want. Or increasingly in our time, be whomever you want. Paul says, rebuke them sharply. Confront them for their false devotion. And as the text continues, he simply says, now confront them finally on their disobedience. Look at verse 15. He gives them this maxim, this proverb of sorts. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. I remember several years ago waking up one morning and looking out my front door window across the street to my neighbor's lawn and his tree that was always normally upright in his front yard had fallen over in this storm that swept through as Texas storms often tend to do in the middle of the night. And so I walked out there as he was beginning to cut his tree up in order to kind of dispose of it. And we noticed quite quickly that on the inside of this tree, even though its external splendor was something to look at, its internal Strength was nothing, for it was just rotten in the middle. And this is what Paul is telling us in verse 15 with this proverb, it's true of every single person, over and against what the false teachers, the circumcision party, would have been teaching. They would have said, you become impure internally through what you do externally. In other words, what you eat or don't eat, what you touch or don't touch. It was this idea of an outside-end view, outside-in view of purity. Well, Paul knows Jesus is teaching quite well, says, no, the right view is an inside-out view of what makes a person pure or what defiles a person. Jesus said, even when he was confronting the Jewish false teachers of his time back in Mark chapter 7, he says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. It's not from without, but from within. And it's necessary for us to note that, for it is a terrifying truth that we do find in Scripture, that from within, from within, our birth, we are rotten to the core, is what Paul is reminding us. We're born into sin. If you're in here today and you're not a Christian, the reality of Scripture tells us that you are a sinner by birth. That from the inside, you are defiled and impure before the Lord. But the good news that we do preach, that we do proclaim, that we do protect, is that God gave His Son the only spotless one and blameless one, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins, shed His blood there on the cross at Calvary so anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Him might be made new from within, born again, granted a heart of spirit, granted a heart of the flesh that follows after Jesus Christ. So from within, truth, righteousness, glorifying God might flower and thrive 
in your life. It's only by trusting in Christ that the stain of sin that is inside of you can be washed away forever in the full forgiveness of His blood. The gospel that we preach and protect, how a person can be made pure before the Lord. But you see in verse 16, as Paul seems to want to do in most of this letter, certainly the first chapter as a whole, it's like he gives us in verse 16 another bullet point list of characteristics with no commentary really whatsoever. Notice what he says. The false teachers profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. That word unfit It was used in ancient times to speak of a metal that didn't pass the test. And Paul is saying here, if you examine the false teachers' lies, if you examine their teaching, they too do not pass the test, the test of faithfulness. So in ways that ought to strike us in its strength, what he begins to call on, and especially with this one word, is this razor-sharp, hard, harsh, broad, strong term used in the Old Testament to condemn idolaters in the worst way. He says they are detestable in their error. Confront their deception, division, their devotion to falsehood, and their continued disobedience that denies what they proclaim to believe. You must confront false teachers when they creep into the church. I think there has only been one time in my ministry of leading churches where a guest preacher was preaching and I nearly stood up to interrupt what I had just heard. It was a friend of mine who's a missionary and he was preaching on Christ's letter to the church in Ephesus found in Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. And his entire ministry, which is extremely large now, it's a fantastic ministry of training pastors around the world who have no access to theological education. And so much then of their ministry is helping these third world pastors discern error and preach the truth. Because there's this global nature of heresy of course, throughout the world. And so along the way, when he was getting to the end of his sermon and he got to his peroration, you know, his kind of climax, he, he looked and he raised both of his hands and looked out on our little congregation and says, I promise you, your elders believe heresy. I almost stood up and waved my hand. I was like, no, we don't. Uh, I promise we don't. But then I realized what he was doing in his metaphorical overstatement, his hyperbolic exaggeration. He was... Warning, rightly, especially in Revelation 2 and 3, if you understand those letters, how easy it is for error to creep into even the healthiest of churches. You must confront false teaching, Paul says. Swiftly, you must deal with it. Soundly and sharply, you must rebuke it. And so as we begin to close, I want to point to two more things in this text that maybe you haven't noticed before, if you're familiar with it, that point to the reality of dealing with false teaching. If there is this continual threat until Christ returns, that false teaching can creep into the church, what should it remind us about when it comes to our church's life together? So the threat of false teaching reminds us, number one, of the necessity for appointing sound leaders. You know, his apostolic agenda for how you deal with falsehood is pretty simple, isn't it? Silence them, rebuke them sharply. 
But what you may not have understood before, and frankly, I didn't really understand until this week, until I saw it in its unique context, how these verses, verse 10 through 16, explain why we heard what we heard last week in verses 5 through 11. For it's as though Paul is saying, appoint elders in every town. He's saying, appoint the mirror opposite of the false teachers infecting those churches. So just glance down with me, kind of bounce back and forth between the two sections as you want to see these things. Verse 10, the false teachers are insubordinate. So therefore, verse 6, an elder's children cannot be accused of insubordination. Verse 10 also, the false teachers are empty talkers. Verse 9, qualified elders must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Verse 10, false teachers are deceivers and always liars. Verse 8, qualified elders are upright, meaning honest in their declarations of the truth. False teachers, verse 11, teach for shameful gain. Verse 7, qualified elders must not be greedy for gain. False teachers, verse 12, evil beasts, verse 16, detestable and disobedient. Qualified elders, verse 8, are holy. False teachers, verse 12, are lazy gluttons. Qualified elders, verse 8, self-controlled and disciplined. False teachers devoting themselves to man-made myths and man-made commands in verse 14. Verse 9, qualified elders must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. False teachers, verse 16, deny God by their works. Qualified elders must be above reproach, verse 6 and 7. And then finally, false teachers are unfit for any good work. Verse 16, qualified elders, verse 8, must be lovers of good. The simplest way, Paul says, to refute false teaching is to appoint godly elders. It's almost as though he's investigated, he's understood this circumcision party, and has said, Titus, the simple way to deal with this in the church is not just rebuke them sharply and silence them through the right preaching of Jesus Christ, but just appoint men who are the exact opposite of these men. And here's maybe the point of application for us as a church, especially if you're in here today and you're a member of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Nominating, installing, and encouraging healthy, qualified leaders is one of the most important things you can do for this church to continue to be faithful with the truth of Jesus Christ. The threat of false teaching reminds us of the necessity to appoint sound leaders. Secondly, to adorn sound doctrine with godliness. Did you notice in all of our text, outside of just an allusion to their content in teaching in verse 14, Paul is focusing on the kind of life they live. Just as last week with qualified elders, he was more interested in the content of their character than the content of their teaching. So too is Paul in this text, when speaking of false teachers, focusing our attention on their character of life more than the character of their instruction. And the reason why is if you just glance back up to verse 1, we'll see this teased out more, Lord willing, next week in the first 10 verses of chapter 2. Paul tells us that there is a knowledge of the truth a proper knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. There's no such thing as a right understanding of truth that doesn't generate, motivate, animate, right living before God. It's why we dare not fall into that kind of common American dichotomy that we often talk about of someone being a head person or a heart person. The Bible tells us that a full mind is necessary to an inflamed heart. 
If the heart's not aflame for Jesus Christ, something is wrong with the knowledge of the truth. And so as we think about preaching and teaching, instructing, encouraging, discipling with God's truth, you know that it is faithful as it's growing godliness in the congregation. Uh, When you think of work and labor for Jesus Christ as revealed in God's Word, you know it is faithful as it's increasing holiness like leaves tend to show up on trees in the spring, so too do fruits of righteousness and goodness flow into a church where Christ is handled rightly, where His truth is articulated clearly. And it's in that kind of a church where Christ is preached rightly, holiness is flowing from it by the Spirit, that you find yourselves in a congregation that is able, with strength, with perseverance, to confront any sort of false teaching that might arise. Let's pray together. Father, we are indeed grateful that you love us enough to warn us away from error. Father, we pray for courage, we pray for zeal, we pray for a passion for the truth that allows us to admonish one another, even exhorts us and enables us to rebuke one another when necessary. Lord, we do pray for humility, even as we want to grow in truth, that we may be humbled before your word as it's given to us, as it's read to us, as we instruct one another in its depths, that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. And Lord, we do pray for your protection, for your hands of sovereign care and kindness, that to indeed continue to rest upon uh, this church, that we might be steadfast and immovable, that we might be faithful in the work of Christ that our lives together might be pure, that our teaching might be pure as well, so Christ would be exalted and lifted up, made manifest in this congregation. And we do pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.